passage that Faith just read and recited to us out of Luke chapter 1, for hundreds of years has been referred to as the Magnificat. It was originally, uh, came off the lips of a young maiden named Mary. And in Luke's gospel, though Luke wrote his gospel, he includes what other people said, what other people wrote. He includes four poems or songs or canticles that we see in the first two chapters of Luke. And the first one is the Magnificat. Now, why, why call it the Magnificat? Well, in the fourth century, uh, St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. And in the Latin version, Magnificat is the first word of the first line of this song that Mary composed. Magnificat, Magnificat, Magnificat anima mea dominum, which means my soul magnifies the Lord, the Magnificat. Well, I'm glad you're here today as we start looking at these songs over the next few weeks here in the room. So glad that you're with us at our Skagit campus. Thanks for being with us. And those of you online, from wherever you are on the globe, so glad that you're here uh, with us. We are in this beginning week of this series, and our whole theme is Heaven and Nature Sings. Heaven and Nature Sings, an obviously very familiar refrain from that great song, Joy to the World, that uh, uh, Isaac Watts wrote years ago, based on uh, Psalm 98. And as he talks about the coming of the Lord, that all of the cosmos, all of the world, all of creation would sing at this this coming. But it's not just a, a terrestrial and cosmic chorus that sings this. Anyone who has ever understood or ever will understand the significance of this event, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the knowing that all of the Old Testament, which points to is culminated in, the prophecies fulfilled in the promise of this one, the hinge of all history, the coming of the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, knows that the correct response to that message is a song of praise. It's how those who experienced it for the first time responded. It's how the angels responded and quite frankly, how we ought to respond as well. With hearts filled with worship and wonder as we sing and praise God. And as I mentioned, in the book of Luke, in those first two chapters, he, he records four of these poem songs canticles. The Magnificat, as we're going to look at today, was written by Mary. And then the next one is called the Benedictus, uh, which means blessing. And we'll look at that next week. And that was written by uh, Zechariah. The third one is called Gloria. This is one that most people are most familiar with, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria, which means the glory, which was from the angels that came in Luke chapter 2. And the final one, uh, Nunc Dimittis, which is by Simeon. We won't have time to get into that one, but it's these four. And you think about the three that we're going to look at. Magnificat, Benedictus, and Gloria. Magnify, bless, and glorify. That when they heard this message of Jesus coming, the response was to magnify the Lord, to bless the Lord, to glorify the Lord. And my hope and my prayer is that over these weeks, as we go into this Advent season, that that will be our response as well. Not just to come in for an hour on a Sunday, but throughout our season, throughout our days, that we would magnify the Lord, we would glorify Him, we would, we would bless Him. And in return, we would have our focus on what really is most important, and that our hearts and our souls will be transformed as well. Now, it's, it is uh, no question that a long-standing tradition and part of the whole Christmas season are songs, Christmas songs. And, and we could debate and discuss when is too early to start listening. I know some of you have uh, this discussion every year. Uh, let's just agree to disagree 
because we will never agree on that. And I'm not taking one side of that. I'm just saying I don't want a, a lot of division in the, in the body of Christ over these kind of things. And, and a lot of questions about you know, what songs are best and those things. When you think about songs of the season, there are some, as you're fully aware, that are just silly, just ridiculous songs, and, and we enjoy them. They're lighthearted. There are some songs that truly are seasonal, have really nothing to do with Christmas, more about winter, snow, and, and such. There are songs that are sentimental, just kind of hit you here. Some of them just like make you feel good. Some of them make you cry. Some of them are like, oh, that's not fair, you know. And then there are songs that are sacred, that really do focus on this message of the coming of the Messiah. But we have all these songs, and they're re-recorded by everybody, you know, every year. And it seems like it's the same song. There are some new ones occasionally. But those, those, those stalwart songs, the, the, the hymns, you know, the, the Christmas carols, they've been around for hundreds of years. So I was curious, when was the first one written? And I, I did a, a bit of a Google search, which always gives you the absolute truth. But all <laughs> scholars point to about the fourth century, and a man named St. Hilary of uh, Poitiers, that he wrote the very, what they would say, this would be the earliest song. It was a song uh, written for a choral arrangement called Jesus, Light to All the Nations. I've never even heard this song, but this was the very first one. And yet 300 years before that, truly the first song that was ever composed, inspired by the birth of Jesus, was by a young 14-year-old girl named Mary. In fact, it wasn't the birth of Jesus, it was before the birth of Jesus, which for some of you who start Christmas music early, that can be part of your, your story there. It was just at the announcement, the anticipation of the birth of Jesus that she wrote this song. And what is amazing about this song, this Magnificat, is the depth of insight, the impact, the, 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 the profound theology in this and what is riveting is that it was written by a 14-year-old girl. Not that a 14-year-old girl is not capable, but when you truly look into this song, you say, this is amazing, her, her grasp of Scripture, her understanding of God, her theology, it's like, it's awe-inspiring. She was so far beyond her years when she sings this song. And so today I want us to take a little bit of time and look at this, at this song. Now, when she writes this song, it's not... It's not just a lullaby that a mom would sing to her baby to get him to sleep at night. It may have had that tune, but the lyrics were not such. And I'm not down on lullabies. I was raised in a church where every year our choir did this singing Christmas tree, and, and it seemed like every year there was this lullaby, this Christmas lullaby that they sang. It was written in Austria years ago. It's called Still, Still, Still. I don't know if you've ever heard this song. It's beautiful. Let me just read this. Still, Still, Still. One can hear the falling snow, for all is hushed, the world is sleeping. Holy star, it's vigil keeping. Still, 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 one can hear the falling snow. Beautiful. It's just, when the choir would sing that, I would just fall asleep. And the second verse is sleep, sleep, sleep. And the third verse is dream, dream, dream. Now, when Mary writes a song, it's not just a lullaby. In fact, E. Stanley Jones would say this about the Magnificat. He said, the Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. Those are strong words. The most revolutionary document in the world. Scott McKnight, in his little book uh, called The Real Mary, he talks about the fact that in the 80s, the government in Guatemala banned any public recitation of the Magnificat 
because they felt like it was politically subservient. It was subversive, this, that it would, it would cause a revolution. Now, I don't know about you, but most lullabies would not be banned by governance, governments fearing that there would be some kind of a, a revolution. But Mary writes this song with this deep theology and, and a grasp on the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Psalms. And again, as you read different commentaries or scholars, they will point to, she's referencing this psalm. She's referencing this message. She's referencing this. Again, in Scott McKnight's book, at the end, in Appendix 1, he just lists off all of the scripture references that she alludes to or, or kind of quotes, and he comes up with 27. He just writes these out. Another scholar I, I read, he said that he came up with 35 different references. And what if, what if? What if this Magnificat had the melody of a lullaby, but the lyrics of a revolution? And what if she sang this to Jesus, not just to Elizabeth, we'll see that in a minute, but she sang this to Jesus, and Jesus, as a little baby, grew up hearing, and as a little boy, he heard every day the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, you shall love the Lord your God, and he heard this song, the Magnificat, with these deep words. Because when you read the Magnificat and you begin to study it, you see that some of the very things that Mary said, Jesus would say in the Beatitudes. That the very themes that she talked about, Jesus would teach. And could it be that Jesus, albeit the Son of God, was the Son of Mary and was taught and influenced by his mother at the earliest years of his life? Now, I want us to look at this, but before we get into it, and again, I'll apologize right up front, we are not going to be able to dig into the Magnificat the way that I would like to, as is always the case with me. As I was doing this sermon, I thought, this ought to be the entire series. Forget the rest of the songs. We should, and so maybe next year. But before we get to that, I want us to kind of just look at the, the prelude and the preeminence of this song. The prelude of the song, I want to spend just a little bit of time with it, and, and though we've heard it before, many of us, I want us to revisit this. The prelude, kind of the, the story behind the song. I don't know about you, but I love when there's a song that I heard when I was a kid or learned or grew up with in my teenage years, that I finally hear the story, what was behind that, what inspired that song, or when it's a song, <laughs> maybe you've experienced this, you, you sang on, it was on the radio your whole life, and you sang it, and then one day you looked at the lyrics and go, oh, that's what that means. And you say, or you're like, oh, well, that's what that means. Okay. Wow, mom let me sing that. Well, I had no idea. So it, it, there's almost always a story behind. Like if you were ever in marching band, chances are you played Chicago's 25 or 6 to 4. Na 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 na. Na 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 na. na yeah, yeah, do, 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 do. Okay. So that song, famous by Chicago, Robert Lamb of Chicago wrote that song about writing that song. Because he had been staying up all night with his writer's block, and at about 3.34, 3.35 a.m., it was 25 or 26 minutes before four o'clock. Thus, 25 or six to four, waiting for the break of day. It's like, oh, well, that's where that made, okay, that's, uh, that explains all that. So today what I want to do is kind of look at this backstory of what led to Mary writing this most profound song. Now again, for many of us, very, very familiar, and maybe too familiar, I wonder if there's a chance that we could just kind of try to hear it afresh for the first time maybe again today. There's an angel named Gabriel, 
Angel Gabriel, he comes to uh, a young teenage girl named Mary, 13, 14, probably 14, 15 years old, most likely. And she lives in this little town of Nazareth in the hill country of Galilee. Now, Galilee was seen, kind of had a reputation of being in the sticks, kind of the, the rednecks. It, it just had that reputation. We, we've seen this before in the New Testament even. So she's out there, and Gabriel shows up to her and brings her a message. The angel comes to her. Now, we all know this. We set up our nativity scenes, and there's always an angel. There's always angel songs with angels. This is not normal. Mary's never been visited by an angel before. We think, well, this, of course, it's the, it's the Christmas story. Mary had never heard the Christmas story. <laughs> this was brand new for her. An angel shows up and talks to her, and as far as we can see in Scripture, this never happens to her ever again. This is a one-off. And this angel Gabriel shows up to her and says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. This, this, for those of you who are Catholic, raised Catholic, have Catholic background, this is where the Hail Mary comes from. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Later that, you know, uh, blessed are you amongst women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. That will come later in Elizabeth's uh, deal. But, but just so you know, the Hail Mary part comes out of Scripture. We say, okay, Hail Mary, blessed are you. Uh, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, Mary has never heard the Hail Mary. Mary never had a priest tell her to go recite 10 Hail Marys. She's never heard this. Look at her response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I mean, there's an angel and he's saying these kind of things. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Troubling, yes, in that She's never had, this isn't, this just doesn't happen. People, that was like, she's probably thinking, that happened in the Bible, not in my day. And there's an angel, but it's beautiful. Because the angel becomes pronouncing grace that you've received and you are full of grace. And the presence, the Lord is with you. And you are favored. And there is nothing to fear. I mean, we could stop right there on that verse because that remains true for us. So maybe after Mary gets over the shock of an angel actually talking to her, it's like, this is, this is good. Then things get weird. The angel says to her, you will have a son. And she's probably thinking, well, yeah. I mean, I, I am betrothed, engaged. And yeah, we, we probably would start a family. I mean, that's kind of what we do here. Yeah, that's, and, and, and you're going to name him Jesus. Uh, it's a good name. It's a good Old Testament name, Yeshua. Yeah, I mean, like Joshua. It's, it's a good name that we hadn't really thought about, but okay. And then the angel gets even farther and says, and your son will be great. Now, let me just say, every mother thinks their son is great <laughs> until middle school. And she's like, of course, yes, my son will be great. But then he says, and he will be the son of the Most High. Now, wait a second. Now, Joseph's a good guy, but you're, wait, you're, wait, you're not talking about how, whoa. And he says, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. You mean like, like King David from a thousand years ago, David? Yeah. And he will reign forever and ever. And his kingdom will have no end. Can I, no, 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 wait a second. You're talking about like now. And, and I wonder, give me a little bit of grace on some, some creative license here. I wonder if Mary says, okay, Gabriel, 
Thanks for being here. This is amazing. Wow. All due respect, I know you angels don't reproduce. I never thought I'd have the talk with an angel. That's not how it works. <laughs> See, I'm a virgin, and here with humans, anyway, there's all this. So Gabriel begins to explain how this is going to happen. Now, again, those of us who've grown up with this, we've read this, we've memorized this, we know this, but think about hearing this for the first time. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit wasn't a normal topic of conversation for them. The Pentecost hadn't happened. They didn't talk about the Trinity. There was Yahweh, but this Holy Spirit, what, I'm not even sure what he's talking about there. And you'll be overshadowed by, by the Most High. So he explains it, but I think she's going, that still doesn't really explain it. I, I, it's, I don't have the, the, the category for that. So Gabriel takes another, another take. He says, okay, you know your relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth was probably like either a very old aunt or maybe a great aunt. Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, we'll look at them next week. Godly, godly people. Zechariah was a priest. Uh, Elizabeth's father was a priest, came from priestly family. And uh, great folks, well along in years, their biggest heartache was they were never able to have kids. Gabriel says, you know your, your, uh, your relative Elizabeth? She is in her sixth month of pregnancy. Like, whoa, that's different. Now, it could, it could be perceived that Mary goes, okay, it's all clear now. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for kind of, I'm good, let's go. I don't think so. I think Mary is filled with all kinds of questions and doubts and uncertainty, but her response, her response warrants its own sermon as well. Her response is this, Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant. Complete surrender, complete submission. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said, and then the angel left her. And then the angel left her. That's it. Maybe. By the way, for those of you who are Beatles fans, this is where the song Let It Be comes from. She's being asked to do something very difficult, hard, struggle, uncertain future, and she says, let it be. Let it be. That's, that's the song. It, it, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me and whispers, words of wisdom, let it be. It's this surrender. It's this trust. Okay, I'm, I'm yours, Lord. I don't get this. I don't understand it. I'm not even sure if it's real, but let it be. May it be unto me. Interesting thing. 33 years later, this baby that supposedly she's going to be having would find himself in a garden with a very, very difficult circumstance and situation that had an uncertain outcome and a lot of fear involved with it. And he says, let it be. May it be to me. Not my will, but your will be done. I think Mary's still wrestling with it. And who would ever believe this? Maybe she's having a hard time even believing it. As we know from the story, Joseph doesn't believe it. And can you blame him? Her parents, come on. Any of you who parents, your daughter comes home saying, hey, let me tell you the good news. You're going to believe that? 
Oh, an angel, huh? Holy Spirit wouldn't even know what that is. The people in the village, do you think they would believe? I think Mary's even struggling, wondering, was that a dream? Did that really happen? Is it it true? I mean, how can I even know? Oh, there is one thing that the angel said, and I can fact check him on this one. He said my relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Obviously, Mary hadn't heard that yet, no internet or no, no way of communicating. And she says, I'll go fact check the angel. And it says she quickly went to the Judean hill country to where um, Elizabeth lived. And as she comes, quite unannounced, she comes into their home, and my, my, my guess is that the home was very quiet. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week if you don't know the story. Very quiet. And she comes in and she says, Auntie Liz, Auntie Liz, it's me, Mary. Look at the response, verse, verse uh, 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Quiz for those of you who grew up in church. Elizabeth has a baby. Who is this baby in her womb? John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's whole reason for, a, for living is to be the forerunner of the Messiah, to be the one that would proclaim, the one that would announce. I'm guessing they hear Mary's voice. John the Baptist is in utero and he says, dude, this is my job. I didn't know I was going to start this early. I'm supposed to be announcing that he's coming. Here I am in a womb surrounded by amniotic fluid. I can't even speak. I got to somehow tell them this is the one. What am I going to do? That's all I can do, but this is what I'm, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to, it's him, it's Messiah, it's Jesus. He's the one. What's amazing is, this is all happening, and these two pregnant ladies have not had pregnancy conversations yet. They haven't compared notes, and what are you going through, and what are you feeling, and what's happening? They haven't seen each other. And even if Elizabeth had seen Mary, Mary's in her first few weeks. She's not even showing. Maybe glowing, but not showing. And then, verse 42, in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, and this is part of your your Hail Mary that some of you grew up with, blessed are you among women and the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the child you will bear. And then this question, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Can you imagine Mary saying, how does she even know? I haven't even seen her. I haven't even talked. How does she know this? Did did Gabriel visit her too? I mean, she's saying some of the same things Gabriel did. That like I'm, that I'm pregnant. She wouldn't know that. And not only am I pregnant, but but it's the Lord, the Messiah. And oh, She's six months pregnant. Check her out. I think at this moment, any doubts that Mary may have been holding on to, any uncertainty that she may have been questioning, any of that was now confirmed. Because what the angel said is true about her relative Elizabeth. And it's been confirmed by what Elizabeth has said to her without ever having talked. And I I wonder if she just says, how did you know this, Elizabeth? And Elizabeth says, what just happened? Verse 44, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist, yes! Here he is, leaping for joy. And then Elizabeth does something amazing. 
she's been just briefly talking with Mary. But now she begins to proclaim in the third person. Now she begins to talk about Mary. Now Mary's hearing it. But who's she proclaiming this to? Zechariah? Maybe. To the world? Maybe. But she begins talking about Mary. Verse 45. Blessed is she. Not blessed are you. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This is why she's blessed. Because while she didn't fully understand it, while it didn't make any sense, while there was a great deal of uncertainty, she trusted, let it be, and believed. And maybe what Elizabeth is saying is, Mary, I know Joseph doesn't believe yet. It doesn't matter. I know your parents don't believe. It doesn't matter. I know everyone from Nazareth, some of them will never believe. It doesn't matter. You believe. You believe. And because you believe, you are blessed. You've taken God at his word. You are his servant. Let it be. Now, now is when she writes her song. Not when the angel appeared to her. Now when she starts feeling, now she writes the song. And oh, how I wish we had the time, and we don't. How I wish we had the time to look at the song that Mary writes and put it right alongside the song that Hannah writes. And if you are interested, write down 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, who has a miraculous God pregnancy, and Mary, who has a miraculous God pregnancy, both have this response in this prayer, and it's amazing how similar their responses are. Most likely, part of it is Mary was very familiar with Hannah, very familiar with that passage, and very much reflected what she hears. Now, that's the prelude. That's the story behind this story. But the preeminence, real quickly, and then we'll get into the, into the song. The preeminence is this, that when Mary writes this first Christmas song, it is sacred. But it's not about, you know, shepherds in their fields and angels that come by night and so afraid. It's not about that. That all will happen. But that's not what the song's about. It's not about we three kings from Orient are. And it's not about that. Not about gifts. It's not about a little drummer boy. It's not about the baby. It's not about cattle lowing. It's not about Mary. It's the whole song de- deflects the, the attention and glory from herself onto God. She just boasts about God the whole time. Now, let's look at this story, this song again, the Magnificat. Verse 46. And Mary said, Magnificat, my soul glorifies, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Again, there's just all of these kind of allusions to the book of Psalms, like in Psalm 103, where it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. That's what she does through this whole song. Her soul, from the depth, from the core of her being, she just blesses, magnifies, praises God. And throughout the song, she forgets not all of his, all of his goodness, all of the things that he has done. And real quickly, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I don't want to cause a big debate here, but there have been um, those who've taught over the centuries that Mary was actually sinless, that she, the immaculate conception, she had no sin in order to be a pure enough vessel to bring about the Savior of the world. But she does say here, 
my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And those who need a Savior are those who can't do it on their own and who have sinned. Now, I will say that some would say the reason she says my Savior is because the Lord saved her from ever having to sin. We won't debate this any further. But she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Remember the world that Mary is in right now. That she would have this magnifying God, rejoicing in God. But the circumstances would not warrant that. On a geopolitical front, Rome has Israel under its thumb. They're under the rule of Caesar. They're overly taxed. And there locally is this king named Herod, and he's not favorable toward the Jews. He has to oversee them. So you have Rome and all of its soldiers and its taxation and Herod and, and his cruelty and, and all the difficulties that they're facing. That's what's happening in, in their region. But in her own life, she, she's a poor, from a very poor family economically, very, very poor. And in her circumstances, She's now in that culture, which would have really not been, not been looked on favorably. She's an unwed pregnant teenager. And the man who she was going to marry is going to be done with her, so relationally. Questionable whether her family even believes this. And if the community, the religious community, were to take the Levitical law literally to its full extent, she could be stoned to death because of this. Things are not beautiful in her world circumstantially, and yet, even so, she exalts the Lord, and she rejoices. Oh, that we could learn this from a 14-year-old girl, that in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our situation, in the midst of things that look horrible, where it feels like God has forsaken us, where it's uncertain what the outcome is going to be, where there's doubt about how this is all going to work out, to say, and yet I will still exalt the Lord my God. I will still rejoice in my Savior. And you see this picture of this, you know, my soul glorifies the Lord. In Psalm 34, it says, um, um, I, I will... I will, uh, I will sing to the Lord, I will boast, my, my, um, my soul will exalt the Lord. The humble shall hear and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. I will bless the Lord at all times, he writes. Psalm 35, we see this. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. All the way through, you just know, Mary knows scripture. Mary has immersed herself in scripture. One scholar I read said, it's possible that Mary had memorized all of the Psalms. Maybe a stretch, maybe not. You just see them all through. What we find is Mary just filled with wonder and worship. The wonder at what God is up to. And the worship as a response to what he's doing. And the rest of her song just begins to tell why it is that she would be filled with wonder and worship. And in our remaining Wow, eight and a half minutes. <laughs> now we're going to get to the, the heart of the song. So, so here's what we're going to do. Going to have to go quick. 
Today what I want to do is we're not going to look at it ex, you know, extensively, but I want to point out three things in the opening verses of this song, three things that would cause her to have wonder and worship, and they're the same three things that can cause us to live in a state of wonder and worship. The first one is this, that God is mindful, that God is mindful, that, that his attention, his, his focus, his awareness of us, no matter what, I mean, she may have felt all alone. But she knew that God was mindful of her. And it reminds me of, of uh, Psalm 8, where the psalmist writes, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, you're, you've set your glory above the heavens. When I think about the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you created him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. She understands, while it seems like she's this nobody from this little backwoods town and this little teenage girl where no one even knows who she is, God is mindful of her. She writes in, in Luke 148, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's fully aware. I mean, he knows what I'm going through. He, he knows me infinitely. He's chosen me. And I'm the most unlikely. I don't think this is a false humility. I don't think he's like, oh, shucks, well, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, I am kind of righteous. I don't think it's that. I think she is completely shocked. Wait, 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 me? Seriously? I'm the least. How, how could, who, who am I? I mean, this is the ultimate Cinderella story before there was ever a Cinderella story. And it just causes her to be filled with wonder. God, why would you choose me? What do you have in mind? What are you thinking? But I'll worship you all the same. Isaiah 57 says this, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God's fully aware. He's mindful of me. Maybe she's thinking of Psalm 139, where the psalmist writes, Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. I mean, you know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind, and before you've laid your hand on me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too lofty for me to attain. And where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to the heavens, you're there. Make my bed in the depths, you're there. Rise on the wings of dawn, settle on the far side of the seat. Even there, your hand will guide me. I mean, you created me in my, inmo, in my mother's womb. You knit me together. How precious to me are your thoughts, were I to count them there without number the grains of sand. She's just aware that God is mindful of her, and it causes her this wonder and this worship of her great God. And the same is true for each one of us. Right now, when you're going through something and you say, no one knows, oh, God does. He's aware. He's mindful. She continues on. She says, from now on, verse 48, the end, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That might seem a bit arrogant, but it's not when you understand. I read one commentary. He said, yeah, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, except for Protestants. <laughs> and let me just address that real quickly. 
because there was a pendulum swing towards this idea of the immaculate conception that Mary has no sin, that we can pray to her, that we should worship her, that she's the queen of heaven, which I feel is very unbiblical. The Protestant church pendulum swung so far to where Mary's just this gal that we put in with the ornaments and pull out for four weeks a year. Somewhere in between there, she is highly favored amongst women. God chose her not to be worshiped, but to look at her example. And she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because of her? Not at all. Let, let me give you this example real quick. I think I can safely say that everyone for the rest of human history that's aware of it will say that I am the most blessed pastor that Cornwall Church has ever had. Now that can sound arrogant, but it's not because I can preach or because I can memorize scripture. You know why I... Why, why generations will say Bob Marvel was the most blessed pastor that Cornwall Church ever had? Because in 1993, I was a 29-year-old man who had just gone through a divorce, did not have a seminary degree, was not ordained, had a mullet, quoted Dumb and Dumber, had never done a funeral, and only done one wedding, and it didn't count because they had already eloped, and they called me to be the pastor. <laughs> That's why I'm the most blessed. And so now for 30 years... This church has prayed for me. This church has been patient with me. This church has been gracious with me. This church has been generous to me. I'm the most blessed pastor this church has ever had, not because of me, in spite of because of me. It's because of the church and the grace. And Mary is saying that from now on, all generations will call me blessed. But it's not because, oh, look at me, look at, they're gonna do the Hail Mary after me. She says, here's why. For the mighty one, has done great things for me. That's why they're going to call me blessed. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is and what he's done. God's mighty deeds. She recognizes this. That God's mighty deeds. If she could go through the whole history of Israel and his mighty deeds to Israel. He, she could talk about him bringing them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, going through the Red Sea, providing the manna and the water and the quail and the Ten Commandments and all the victories over the years and going into the promised land across the Jordan River and conquering and all. She could go through all the mighty deeds that God had done for Israel. And that's true. This is the mighty one has done things for me. It's personal. And while we can recite all the great things God has done in history, maybe one of the healthiest things for us to do is remember all the great things God has done for us in our lives. His grace, His forgiveness, His provision, His walking us through those valleys, His victories, and to see those again and again. Verse 49 the mighty one has done great things for me. And then she throws in this line, holy is his name. No doubt she's aware of the Ten Commandments. You know, she'll not take the Lord's name in vain. Holy is his name. And what if? What if this little Jesus heard this song every single night? And then 30 years later, when his disciples said, hey, Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, okay. First, we start with calling God our Father. And then there's this little song my mom taught me. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. God is mindful. 
And he brings these mighty deeds. And finally, that God is mercy full. Caesar is not full of mercy. Herod is not full of mercy. The Pharisees are not full of mercy. The people of Nazareth are not full of mercy. But there is one whose goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, it says that God delights to show mercy. So she writes in verse 50, his mercy extend to those who fear him from generation to generation. Always has, always will, morning by morning, new mercies I see. So I think if we just even took those three words, mindful, mighty, mercy, and we held on to those that, that we would have a sense of wonder and worship. Mary, amazing, no doubt. Mary called for a specific purpose that no one else does, no doubt. But let me, let me venture out and say, in some ways, we're not so different from Mary. In some ways, completely different, yes. But in some ways, we're not so different from Mary. Let's go back to what the angel said to her. Verse 28, the angel said, went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, full of grace. You have received grace. The Lord is with you. Can I just say that that's true for every single one of us? That you have received grace and the Lord is with you. Just as he was with Mary. Now, I got I to wrap this thing up. If you read through the, the song, the Magnificat, you get to the end and it just kind of ends abruptly. It's not like, okay, let's repeat the refrain and then kind of fade, you know, repeat and fade. It just kind of ends kind of abruptly. And what if that was by design? What if that was by design because the song is not finished? That we have our Magnificat. That we continue singing the song that Mary began singing. That we would continue on with this. That we would be filled with wonder and worship. That we would reflect on the fact that God is mindful of us in our situation. That we would remember that God is the mighty God, not just in history, but in our lives. And that every single day, we experience the mercy of God. See, it won't just be heaven and nature that sings. It's us. So here's what I want to challenge you with this week. One is, I'll give you three challenges. One is to read Luke chapter 1. It's a long chapter, but it will put all this in context and set you up really good for next weekend. That way I don't have to preach as long. Read Luke chapter 1, and then, once, throughout the week sometime, and then if you're like, okay, how does my Magnificat go? Then read her Magnificat, Luke 1, 46 through 55. Read those verses every single day and then make them personal. Recount the way that God has been mindful of you. Recount the mighty deeds that he's done for you. And remember his mercies for you are brand new today. That you have received his grace and he is with you. Hail Cornwall Church.
full of grace. The Lord is with you.